Yeah. So, so, oh look, there's another little, there's another little, there's another beetle here, look. Oh no, he's got, he'll come back, he'll come back later. Welcome Farmeramers. Today we are brimming with innovations and new perspectives to share with you. We get our teeth into crowd farming oranges, farmer to farmer knowledge sharing in Kenya and Peru and food assemblies with Nigel, Ben gets an organic perspective on hydroponics, and Abby has been to the States to get the lowdown on a tool that's coming to the rescue of the overloaded salad grower. And we'll learn to eat like a climavore. That's eating based on the landscape we inhabit. First up, farming without soil. Hydroponics has been touted as a great way to feed our ever-growing population, especially in cities. It can be done indoors, at high density, and the conditions are easily controlled. Alan Schofield, a long-term organic grower, asks some interesting questions about the principles behind it. Ben Raskin of the Soil Association spoke to him for Farmerama to find out how does hydroponics gel with organic ideas. To me, organic production is a cyclical system. As a long-standing organic producer, I have tried wherever possible to recycle plant waste. The only materials that we buy in for fertility on this holding are either green manure seeds or one or two things like a little bit of straw to pad out our composting system. Beyond that, everything is recycled and that nutrition from, if you like, our waste, waste out of the pack house, waste from when we've cut a crop and there's all the root systems and there's all the leaves that we don't sell, etc, etc. All of that is put into a system where it's recycled and then that's put onto the soil. That is not the fertility for next year's crop. The fertility comes from the bugs and the beasts that live within the soil working on that material. So I always look at it that all we're doing is we're feeding the soil flora and fauna. They're then making the nutrients that my plants then take up and grow off. A soilless system is nothing to do with recycling to me. It's actually a system where you're having to bring everything in. So just as I like, would like to think that my particular system mimics what we do here at What Planet Earth itself does, i.e. it is a closed system and everything within it is recycled, to me a hydroponic system or growing out of the soil would require bringing in materials to, for the fertility to grow those crops and that to me is a linear system. So you've got to bring things in from further afield and then you end up with a waste problem of having to try to get rid of the end products other than the crops. So I think it actually goes against the principles of what we've been trying to achieve over the last 40-50 years here in the UK in commercial organic production. Nowadays, with the market being so difficult, if you like, and people questioning why should we produce food organically when we can use genetically modified crops, etc., etc., one of my biggest arguments against a hydroponic growing system is we have built, if you like, wonderful customer relationships and an integrity for our production system that if we were to allow the certification of hydroponically grown, organically grown crops, as they do in the States at the moment, then we would lose a lot of that integrity and a lot of that trust that I feel that our system of production is based upon in our customer relationship. 
organic standards have always, if you like, protected the consumer in the fact that they guarantee that the farmer is actually doing what he said. And as organic growing techniques have developed and liquid feeds have become available, and as you've rightfully said, just at certain times of the growing cycle, maybe the plants do need a helping hand, and it's good that we have that provision of tools in the box that we can use. But enshrined within the organic standards is this concept that anything like that that you're using can only be used as a supplement to the main sources of fertility. And we interpret that, that no more than 49% of the entire nutritional needs of any one crop can come from those outside of materials. And this is why I don't believe you can ever have a true organic hydroponic system, because 100% of that plant's needs will be being supplied, and that is actually against organic standards as set in most of the world today. Even, even if those nutrients came from an organic source, you're still not, you haven't got an organic system. No, no, because they're being bought in. Yeah. Here where we have absolutely wonderful soils that all we're doing with modern day agriculture is degrading them, then no, I actually think it's a nonsense and I think we should go back a step and be put paying a lot more care and attention to the soils that we have because let's face it, we don't make any more on an annual basis. We've got what we've got and it's up to us to treat it decently. And again, if we don't treat it decently, it's not us that lose out. It's our children and our children's children. And we are spending, if you like, their heritage by not looking after our soils correctly. And we should be doing better. So what I think is quite interesting is that there is, in the EU, there's a regulation which means that hydroponic systems cannot be organic. Um, but the worry here is that in the United States, there's, a, there's kind of less control and there's less people monitoring those organic rules. Um, so there's the worry that that's going to come over here and what is organic is going to be sort of watered down. So you're saying that in the U.S. you can have organic hydroponics? Yes. Mm. Well, it's getting, getting more and more that way. I have to say, I hadn't thought of um, Alan's arguments prior to hearing them today. Um, but I definitely think they're really valid. Uh, one thing I would argue that I think organic farming is circular in, in the ideal. But that in the reality, there's quite a lot of organic farms out there that do use you know organic fertilizers and stuff that is actually being drawn from other systems so they're not quite as circular as you might expect um but i would totally advocate the more circular organic systems and i i do think that people who are doing it you know um with a lot of principles involved that is much better for the environment than a hydroponic system. If this interests you, um, Ben's actually planning an extended version of his interview, which he's going to put out through the Soil Association. So keep an eye out for that. I have lived in these hills ever since I was my mother's daughter. And you just can't take these hills away without the fighting. You may drive me cheats, but I was born a big strong woman, and you just can't take these hills away without me fighting. 
Vegetarian, vegan, paleo, organic, local. There are so many ideas about the best way to organize what we eat, and the motives are various, from personal health to religion to climate change. But what about a diet based explicitly on food relating to the landscape we live in? I'm really excited about this idea. It's time to introduce the Climavore diet. Cooking sections are a design and architecture studio who have set out to explore the systems that organise the world through food and thinking about food. They created an installation based around five climate seasons and they created a dish for each climate. Naomi went to investigate for Farmerama. So the food that we choose will also affect climate change in one way or another, but also we would contribute to fight it. So we propose here five dishes which relate to five different seasons. So seasons for us are not any longer summer, spring, autumn, winter, because we can eat anything anytime, but seasons of water scarcity, seasons of invasive species, and so on. So they, we do not believe anymore in being vegetarian for your whole life, but maybe you need to eat certain kinds of fish if you want to val- balance the ecosystem in certain parts of the world. The idea is that you would eat everything based around like a, an environmental problem. So, for instance, in California with the drought recently, maybe you would need to eat species uh, during the drought season that require very little irrigation. So even, for instance, like a local tomato would be actually bad to contribute to the system wow. because it requires much more water than other grains. So who are you trying to reach? Are you trying to reach the farmers, the consumers? Like everyone at large. I think it's a matter of trying to move beyond labels and certifications of free trade, organic and so on and raise awareness about how you could do like do-it-yourself contribution to climate change. So there's a few seasons that I see here on a piece of paper. We have Forever Fertile uh-huh. and then you should eat... What we call nitrogen fixation mulch, which is, I mean, there are a million things you can eat, but we propose this for today which is a mix of alfalfa, peas and clovers because they function as a fertilizer. And this is a very old method that since the Middle Ages people have been using rotational crops of alfalfa to kind of um, regenerate it. But there is not enough demand for alfalfa. But potentially if people would be eating it that more, there could be a reduction on the amount of fertilizers. And then we have drought season. Which is what I explained before, like these water stress balls consisting of like crops that require very little irrigation so lentils millet pomegranate carob mm-hmm. and then we have the invasive season which would be eating invasive species until you get rid of the problem Ooh, so if there's, if there's a lot of grasshoppers we all should have yeah. grasshoppers like in the caribbean now it's a problem with lionfish and like the Cayman Islands, for instance, are trying to institutionalize it as a national dish in order to keep their environment as it was. And then we have the ocean cleaning season. Which is, again, like how do you purify the water through uh, seaweeds or mussels or kelp that uh, filter like the different 
uh, pollution of the water and turn it into like oxygen. And then the last one we have here is desertification season. Which is the, well, the one you tried, the Moringa, uh, which we call desert stoppers as dessert. And it uh, relates to the new political alliance that happened in 2010 of the countries at the southern edge of the Sahara Desert. And they are trying to plant the new Great Green Wall um, from coast to coast of Africa in order to stop the advance of the desert. And in order to do that, they would need to plant more trees that can survive there, like the Moringa tree. But again, if there is not enough demand, especially in uh, Europe, for instance, that no one really knows Moringa, or very few people do, uh, farmers could have an incentive to, to grow those trees. That was Naomi talking to Daniel from Cooking Sections for Farmerama. Thank you. Some of their ideas are similar to that of Chef Dan Barber's, such as the fertile mulch season, which encourages people to eat alfalfa and peas. You know, they're great at fixing nitrogen in the soil, so then if more people eat it, then more farmers will be incentivized to plant these crops and nurture their soil naturally. A locally grown tomato, if you're living in California, would not be a cool thing to eat because it uses huge amounts of water to grow. And like something, I think this is certainly a way of thinking about where I am in the world and what I consume and what I use that really makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. You know, so many people advocate local as the pinnacle of um, optimal food uh, choices for in terms of sustainability and, and the environment. But yeah, amazing to have that example of like, in California, in a drought, the tomato is actually, even if it's local, could be a really detrimental crop. And that you could be doing less harm by having grains come from across the country. It's like a lot of these things seem to be focusing on sort of one problem with the food system, mm-hmm. where this looks as the food system as a whole. Mm-hmm. And that's a just, it's a much more satisfying thing intellectually to think about. Totally. No, it's really cool. Um, and actually, I, something that it took me a little while to get my head around. Very cool. And speaking of California, sort of, you were in California, but you also, you've just been in Utah. Um, You visited Eden and Powder Mountain, which is the home of the Summit community. And I think you had a quite a nice time, didn't you? Yeah, it's a beautiful place on Earth. Um, Really, really incredible. And lots of really interesting people, Um, an amazing community of entrepreneurs, changemakers, yeah, all sorts of great people. You'll get to hear more next month. Yes, so we're quite excited about it. But there's one thing that we're so excited about we couldn't wait to tell you. So we're going to give you a little taster. Exactly, yeah. So the local farm uh, is run by Pete and Katie. It's called Sandhill Farms. Um, They farmed in Eden for 10 years, all organic. 
and they do a local CSA, and they're actually really renowned for their garlic. We couldn't resist sharing a few minutes this month about a tool that has Pete super excited. For the last nine years, um, we've grown a lot of baby salad mix. Um, it's profitable, there's a demand for it, um, and it grows well in, in our climate. The challenge with it is that it's, it is very labor intensive as well. You know, it needs to be planted every eight to 14 days. Um, it needs to be harvested early in the morning when it's cool and, and it needs to be harvested kind of quickly. And, and then it needs to be packaged, rinsed, packaged and sold within a day or two at the most of being harvested, whereas garlic can store for six months. And so the new, I'm calling it, you know, um, scale appropriate technology that we've invested in. We actually got a grant through Slow Food Utah to purchase this, um, but it's called a quick cut greens harvester. And it's basically a 15 inch serrated blade um, that vibrates back and forth to, to create a, you know, a cutting mechanism with a, a battery powered hand drill. Um, and so it basically is this structure that kind of fits in two hands. You hold the the button down on the drill and it activates the, you know, you hear this ring, ring out in the, out in the field. Uh, the people that are harvesting radishes the other day kept looking over at me and laughing. Cause you know, I was out in the field with this little hand tool. Um, incredibly, incredibly efficient. I cut 40 pounds of greens in, in, in 20 minutes. Um, that would have taken me two to three times, three, three to four times longer with a, with a harvest knife. Having something that's a 200 to 300% increase in efficiency um, is a big deal. You know, if there's only three people on the farm working and you can, one person can get the work done of three in an hour, that's, those are the kind of efficiencies that we need to be figuring out how to have more of. But I actually got to use it this morning for the first time for a harvest and I was just shaking my head thinking, wow, for almost a decade I've, I've cut greens um, with a, you know, a sharp harvest knife, which is how a lot of people do it. And, and, um, but this is something that, yeah, it's pretty simple in, in its, in its setup. Um, and we're going to be able to do a lot more in, in less time. So, um, and the quality, I think of the cut is actually better than doing it with a, with, with a knife because it's more, uh, it's more uniform. And so our, we do a lot of salad greens that we cut multiple times in after one sewing will cut two or three times and you need to have a real clean um, first cutting to get the second regrowth to be quality the amount of farm worker um, um, being in, in bad posture leaning over harvesting things we do enough of that all day long that if there's anything that can make our 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 lean over less and our bending <laughs> over less that's a good thing and um, yeah, so this is going to take a, a morning greens harvest from a two to three hour thing down to like a 45 minute operation. Um, haven't gotten to see it in action myself. And, and like I said, this morning used it for the first time and, uh, I had to call off two of my workers that I was going to have come early this morning because I was done. Yeah. Really excited about that and, and excited to, to share it too with some of my other friends that I know are growing greens with and harvesting with knives. Thanks, Pete. It's always great to hear about a relatively low-tech tool that makes such a difference. Oh, there it is. Water, 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 water,
It's rather like it's got a lovely. Yeah, um, that's the sound you've yeah, got. Oh, you can't see it, but it's yellow as on the other side. Oh, well, you're going to You might have noticed that we haven't heard from Nigel this month. Well, we can hear him beetling around in the background. Yeah, what he's actually doing here is he's rooting around for snails, beetles, caterpillars with Sussex Wildlife Trust ecologist Graham Lyons. Um, so he's doing that on his farm, which is where he is right now. So unfortunately he can't join us right now, but I did manage to catch up with him earlier in the week to see how he got on at a panel that we put together with the girls at Rework as part of the Future Food Summit. So it was it was a food tech event. It was mainly kind of like startups, uh, people doing exciting things within the kind of food tech industry. And our interest is obviously like, you know, quite near the beginning of that chain. Yep. Do you feel that farmers were were represented at this event? They were definitely like they were spoken about, um, but there weren't like there weren't many farmers there, Joe. So it was it was good to to, to be able to um, represent sort of farmers and and give a farming perspective. You had three guests, three quite different types of businesses, but all working directly with farmers. And you managed to grab the speakers um, for a bit of a chat after the panel, so we're going to hear from them now. Um, your first guest was a name that will be familiar to Farmer Mama listeners, it's Food Assembly. Yes, uh, I, I caught up with Carolyn. So I think one of the main challenges with farming is the low profit margins, and that it's actually really, yeah, it's becoming less and less economically sustainable to be a farmer, and that is certainly due, due to the pressure on food prices, but also due to the long supply chains and a lot of middlemen and like selling through supermarkets um, gives a farmer on average 20 to 40 percent of of the value of what they're actually selling. So we are a very decentralized model and like anyone can really open a food assembly in their local community. Um, So all you have to do is go on to our website um, and basically apply to become a food assembly organizer um, and then yeah and then bring people together and as a food assembly organizer you get eight percent of everything that's sold so in a way we're also creating local jobs the whole business model is that eight percent goes to the food assembly organizer eight percent goes to us leaving the farmer with over 80 percent of everything um, that's sold um, so yeah there is the biggest incentive is really to provide better access to fresh local food to someone's local community so eventually it's up to every food assembly organizer how they create and design their own food assemblies it could be that they have film screenings or talks um, at their collections or they organize farm visits and that's a really nice thing as well that we are a platform but we're also a decentralized um, offline network of local food communities that was carolyn from food assembly Nigel, who was your next guest? We had uh, Gonzalo from Valencia, a fruit farmer. Six months ago, we created a new concept, a new um, let's say supply chain that is called the crowd farming, where basically we do is we make part, we make our customers part of our production. So instead of selling them oranges, we sell them a tree that will provide them the fruit. With this model, we can connect the consumers with the farmers and, and produce exactly what they want. We launched this project. There are a lot of customers that are coming to our finca to, to visit their tree. And it's very romantic. So after, after the success of this project, we see, okay, we can take the concept of crowd farming to, to other products that we were producing in Spain, 
most of the farmers think that to 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 have a profitable um, business, they have to produce quantity instead of quality, mm-hmm. and doesn't matter what you do, you will never be able to produce as cheap as you can produce in Brazil mm-hmm. or in Morocco. Okay, so uh, if you really want to uh, live uh, as a farmer in Spain, you, you, you have to produce quality. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we changed the model six years ago. We start selling um, to end customers all over mm-hmm. Europe. And, and so, so that's, a, that's a good point. Um, so you're basically selling, it's not just to the local community, you're selling across borders to, to Germany, to other countries, is that right? That's it's right. Uh, but this is where we can go in less than three days. Okay, this is important. For me, as I'm 30 years old, Europe is local. Okay, uh, I'm not selling in the US, but it's, it's, we sell to places where we can bring the audiences uh, in less than th- uh, three days. For example, to France we deliver in one day, to uh, Germany in two days, and here in the UK in two, three days. Yeah. So this is important for us uh, to produce local but European. Yeah. Yeah. To me, it sounds like a really quite a cool idea. It's like a snazzy bit of marketing. It's like a sort of spin on a CSA. No, no, yeah, absolutely. You're, you're right. Um, it is it's like a modern day csa it's like basically getting people to share in the in the risk and 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 letting them you know take part in 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 you know almost the running of the farm i don't think maybe modern day csa is gonna like put off some of our uh, csa (laughs) listeners because i don't think there's anything not modern about csa but i i take your point it's a yeah it's a new way of selling a quite similar idea and finally we had kenny I think this is a really interesting project um, about sharing knowledge between farmers in a quite interesting way, which is, you know, that's primarily what we're here to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so what we do at WeFarm is provide a platform to be able to both access and share vital information uh, for small-scale farmers around the world who don't have any connection to the internet. Um, so mostly using text message as a vehicle, um, we can have a farmer ask a question in rural Kenya, have it answered in rural Uganda, and analyze the data that comes out of all of those um, questions and answers for the benefit of, of everybody. Um, in today's discussion, we talked a lot about um, both that aspect of con- connecting farmers to each other, but also then uh, connecting the whole supply chain, so farmers to consumers, uh, farmers closer together to the to the intermediaries and, and supermarkets are ultimately buying their products and you know, trying to, to cut down this cycle of waste and, and inefficiency. I can give you a, a quick example of a farmer uh, called Kefa in Kenya that we uh, that was a, a wee farm member still is. Um, Kefa keeps chickens, uh, quite a small number of them, about forty or fifty. Uh, he had a, a virus that was kind of ripping through his his flock of chickens and had already killed uh, twenty of them. So he sent uh, an SMS to Wee Farm asking for advice on how to stop this. Uh, within five hours, he got uh, several pieces of information back from from Wee Farm, and using that information, was able to save uh, the rest of his flock that um, almost certainly would have died. Um, I mean, that sounds fairly simple standing here talking about saving 20 chickens uh, but to Kefa that is his entire livelihood so that's yeah. what pays for his kids to go to school puts food on, the, food on his family table so um, that's the kind of basic fundamental information that we tend to deal with is core agricultural program problems and sourcing peer solutions to those I, I can see it doing really really well um, it sounds like some really interesting stuff there they're, they're really great projects which I'd like to know about a bit more was there a did you have a discussion and question and answers with the audience and what sort of things were the audience 
interested in knowing and how did they respond one one of the questions uh, posed was why aren't more farmers utilizing these tools you know we're busy farming right well, this is it this is like i mean i basically explained i said you know like given my own situation it it, it is it's it's uh it's more than a full-time job just like running the farm keeping everything ticking over and suddenly to to like you know um, start crowd farming or doing something else on top like requires at least an extra person if not two people to make this happen farmers generally don't get much spare time a lot of these platforms and things that are being developed right now can really help farmers empower farmers like to to greater things be more efficient get closer to the consumer like develop stronger businesses that are less reliant on the industrial food system Thank you for listening. All our previous 10 shows are on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts from. If you could take the time to write a review or give us a rating, we would really love that as it helps other people find out about Farmerama. And also do like us on Facebook, Twitter, or even just mention us to your farmer and foodie friends. Let's knit an ever wider web of people who understand the importance and resilience of smaller scale farming. We'll be back next month. Thank you. Bye. Ciao.